0: There once was a ship that put to sea, and the name of that ship was the Billy O.T. The winds blew harder, bow dip down, blow me, bully boys, blow. Soon may the weatherman come, to bring us sugar and tea and rum. One day when the town is down, take her leave and go. She had not been two weeks from shore, and down on her right Regular listeners will probably be aware of a theme I keep coming back to in this series again and again and you're probably bored by this theory of mine. You see, I fundamentally believe that sea power is way more important than land power. I mean, don't get me wrong, you could have an army of millions at your disposal and you're tough, but without ships, this force is always defeated by the ocean, time after time. And the history of Britain had shown that if you control the sea, you can defend the island, and if you don't control the sea, the island is doomed. At no time was this more true than in the 11th century. Within the space of about 50 years, four separate invasions landed upon English shores. Four times, someone else gained the control over the sea, and four times, they successfully landed their forces and gained strategic advantage. They forced the defenders of England to come to them, not the other way around. And of the four would-be conquerors, one, Harald Hardrada of Norway, would fail in his attempt, but the other three, Sven Forkbeard, his son Canute of Denmark, and later Duke William of Normandy, they all succeeded. And based on that record, you would think that England didn't have an effective fleet. This is not the case. At least one other major invasion was seen off by the English fleet during this era, and more than that, both the campaigns of Sven and William were almost undone by the actions of the fleet. In fact, the fleets of England were so important, I believe that you cannot understand 11th century England, the latter days of the very incorrectly named Anglo-Saxon era, without understanding the power and the influence of the English fleet. And you cannot talk about the English fleet without talking about London. Hi, my name is Saul and I'd like to welcome you to the story of London a podcast dedicated to telling the history of the world through the experiences and adventures of one single location, the City of London. Each episode stands alone, but they also take us along the chronicle of the city in a linear fashion. And this week, how England's growing naval power was to change London and leave it indelibly marked for the future, because if anything was responsible for London becoming the capital of England, it was this. I will also point out that due to travelling around a bit, I am recording in a very different location, so if it sounds slightly different than other episodes, I do apologise. Anyway, welcome then to chapter 41 of the story of London, The Many Fleets of Lambeth. Now, in the last episode, I was looking at a series of disasters that were impacting England round about the same time, and I ended that chapter by stating that London responded to all of this by throwing in their lot with King Edward the Confessor, supporting him entirely with the same ferocious loyalty they had shown the support of his father, Ethelred and his brother, Edmund Ironsides. But I think we need to talk about those ships and all of England's ships right now, because to understand why London did this, we have to examine these ships and how they were connected to the city's relationship with the king. Okay, so let's go back to the coronation of King Edward the Confessor in 1043 for a, just a moment. And the whole symbology of him being crowned on Easter Sunday. And it's sending out a signal that his coronation signified a rebirth and resurrection of the Old England now emerging from decades of Danish occupation. For London, the first impact of King Edward then, would have been the symbology of his coronation. I mean, it was effective religious propaganda being used to get people on his side. But Edward seems to have recognized that London was somewhere important from the word go. And he did a couple of things to spread propaganda for his regime that would have intimately involved our city. The first, slightly overlooked thing he did, was he got London's many moneyers and coin makers to produce a new type of coin. As well as having his head on one side, on the other was a Christian cross, but crucially now added with the design feature of having the word peace added to it. Now, while this sounds like a minor design feature, if you can remember back in chapter 33, so almost 30 years previous to this date, His father had used a coin that had the symbol of the Lamb of God on it uh, to symbolically suggest that God would deliver the nation from the terror of the Vikings, who were busy rampaging all over England at the time. So a generation had passed, but Edward's coin seemed to be making a symbolic fulfillment of that promise. God was finally bringing peace to the land. Again, it seems like a small thing, it is a small thing, but given that the coins of England were the iconic symbol of the kings, easily the way almost all the residents ever saw the king, and given that all the way back in chapter 30, I spent perhaps way too long going over how crucial the twin mints of London and Southwark were to the English monetary system, and remember, it appears that all the coin dyes for the nation were created here, the propaganda value of these coins would have perhaps struck home harder in london been noticed more there maybe but the main thing edward did that solidified his relationship with london wasn't iconic and wasn't symbolic it was a very practical and very much an exercise in power projection he focused on london's main geopolitical role outside of coin making its relationship with the fleet. Now, for over a dozen chapters, I've been describing London's pivotal role at the heart of the English naval forces. How London seems to appear time and again in any and all conversations about the creation and utilisation of a navy. Indeed, I have postulated that I think that London, due to circumstances at the time, but also its continued mention in this role, was the place of origin of the faction of people who believed the key to England's defence was an effective fleet. Time and again, we've seen Londoners demand fleets raised in their city. We've seen them man ships that have sailed out to take battle to the Scandinavians on the high seas. We've seen their growing bloody-mindedness, the defiance of London that made it their place that had survived countless sieges and attacks, and they seemed to be born out of their experiences on the fleet. After all, at one point, if you can remember, the crews of London ships were so eager to sail out and engage Scandinavian invaders, that cowardly nobles in charge had to use violence to keep the short ships moored up. Back in chapter 27, I dedicated an entire chapter to examine how ships under the control of London alone had taken on and defeated the fleet of the Yom's Vikings. So all these hints and scattered fragments suggest that London and the words community who advocated an aggressive national naval policy were interchangeable. And so now we come to a new king. For many historians, the reign of Edward the Confessor is the golden age of the Anglo-Saxon Navy. But in truth, they only say that because Edward's reign is the one we have an awful lot of evidence for. But this evidence will tell us a part of London's story that is almost always overlooked. London was the heart of the English fleet. 1,000 years ago, long before there was an admiralty, It was London, and always London, that the nation's naval policy was decided in, where the fleet would be based, where England's foreign policy was ultimately worked out. London was to become, during the reign of Edward the Confessor, the geopolitical centre of the will of England. And that's a pretty big claim, so let me put some meat on the bones of that one. The manning and building and organisation of the English fleet was a complex thing. And in actual fact, at this age, having grown previously in the decades before, we would imagine, there wasn't just a single fleet of England. There were several. The first was the King's Fleet. These are ships and crews paid for and maintained directly by the King of England himself. But that fleet was never that large, and it paled into utter insignificance compared to the other English fleet, the one made up of the Fjord. Now, for people who are new to listening, allow me to just explain. The Fjord was the National Army of England, which was raised out of the shires of England as well as in population centers like London. Since it was established in the reign of Alfred the Great, it had been the bedrock of English military prowess, and when used correctly, It had destroyed countless foes. Now, it's easy to imagine that the fjord was a citizen army, a militia made up of the brave peasants of Alfred's England. But to be somewhat more precise, the fjord was actually a semi-professional force on the whole. It was made up of men from across England with some social standing, small landowners, people who would in time be known as the Yeomanry of England. You see, such men could afford proper weapons and equipment because you know you needed things like a sword, a helmet, a mail shirt, probably a horse to ride to battle. The Fjord didn't like to ride in in battle, they liked to ride to battle. Such men would also have had time to train, which is why there was a degree of professionalism within the ranks of the Fjord. Now they were always a king's levy, and while not massive, it did represent a significant increase of troops much higher than anything that had been seen during the era of Alfred the Great. And yet, along the way, despite having this enormous and powerful new army, England realised it needed more than just an army, it needed a navy. All the way back in chapter 21, I mentioned the influence of the former Bishop of London, Dunstan, now known as Saint Dunstan, upon the new King of England at the time, Edgar, the grandfather of the current King Edward. Crucially, back then, I described how Dunstan, in the process of his monastic reforms, had also overseen the implementation of the first levy system that was to provide the foundation stone of the English fleet. He seems to have been the first person to have drafted laws which said... The land-based communities of the island should pay for the building and maintaining of ships to defend the coasts of England. Well that was back in the 960s and 970s, and yeah less than a century had passed since then, but during this time ideas had cemented and gelled and become accepted. Which basically means, probably dating to much earlier, but certainly now in the 1040s, the feared could always serve at sea. And simply put, when they did, they were known as the Shipfjord. I have read several books that suggested that the men of the Shipfjord of England were separate from the men of the Fjord of England, a later delineation of navy and army. But such delineation was not set back then, and if anything, the navy-based way of seeing things actually seems to have been the default setting for all military matters. How can I justify that? Well, consider this. You may have noticed as the chapters have gone by, regular listeners anyway, that the unit of measurement of the Vikings and also English forces was often done by the ship. We hear of 20 ships raiding somewhere, 40 ships invading somewhere, even 90 ships arriving and devastating somewhere. And then we as historians guesstimate the exact numbers of troops involved after this. It does appear at the time that the ship, whatever size the ship was, was the tactical unit of measurement for all sides in the ongoing wars that were plaguing England. And so the Fjord fit in around this. They were, when they were being defensive, the Fjord, the defensive forces who manned the burrs of England. But they were also the men who appeared to have easily become the ship's Fjord when required. Now, this begs a lot of questions about how yeomen, who worked farms across the shires of England, could be able to operate at the sea just as readily. I mean, there is something I need to explore because the obvious counter to my points would be, hey, so a bunch of pig farmers are not going to make effective 11th century wall marines. It's a good point, although if I was being flippant, my natural response would be... Well, you know, when it comes to the mechanics of hand-to-hand fighting, fighting on the deck of a ship and fighting in a a muddy field in Shropshire, it's still roughly the same thing. You stick the pointy end of your sword in the other guy before he sticks the pointy end of his sword into you. But, if I wasn't being flippant, I would take on board that there was more to serving in the shipyard than just fighting on the decks of ships there would have been specific skills needed. So maybe as part of their fjord training, these rural men were taught how to handle oars on these ships as they navigated the waters around England. And it must be said, rowing at sea is not as easy as it appears. It does require training. Yet while men from somewhere like London could be expected to be well-versed in such things, it being a major port, or while members of the fjord who originated from coastal regions like East Anglia or Sussex or Kent would be expected to have those specialist skills, it would seem a bit of a stretch to suggest that men from somewhere like Warwickshire, the most central of English counties, or from Shropshire or Middlesex should also be skilled in seaborne craft, yes? Well, no, far from it. The evidence suggests that the English fleets from the time of King Edgar onwards were usually filled with land-based rural soldiers, and yet they appear to be completely comfortable with being used on the sea. And I mean, before examining this, I've got to say, would it actually be possible, at least hypothetically, for rural-based men from English shires to gain knowledge of sea skills? Well, consider that we're now two centuries on since the first Viking raids. Two centuries since one. Harsh reality was driven home at the point of many swords and axes. The entire culture of the whole of Northern Europe was permeated by a sense of the sea. Because via any river, the sea and the people upon it could make an unexpected and unwelcome impact into your community. If you were near a river, you were part of the world of the sea. But then, adding a complication to this, Not only do we see men seemingly from rural places serve on the fleets of England, we also see the commanding officers of these craft, the steersmen, would also be based in rural regions miles from the sea, and this is way more significant. A steersman would have to know more than just how to steer a ship. They would need to grasp such advanced things, such as the rigging and the maintaining of a sail, Piloting, they would be expected to have knowledge of winds and tides, shoals and sea marks. Skills a bunch of farmers that had no professional reason to have would have had. And yet we have to take on board that English yeomen or English farmers did display these skills. For example, around the year 1000, so 40 years before where we are now in the story, the then Bishop of London, Wolfston, drew the men for his contribution to the shipfjord from mostly inland villages. And we have in the reign of Edward himself a bunch of men, designated steersmen of the English fleet, and their names and places of origin tell you they weren't growing up by the sea. Edric the steersman came from Offerton, which lies to the northeast of Worcester. Another Worcestershire-based steersman was a man called Thorkill of Pershaw. Edric was from Bredenton in inland Norfolk. Wollstone was from Great Barford in Bedfordshire. They were not living in obvious places to gather such specialist knowledge. So it begs the question, how the hell did they learn this? Well, ultimately we got three possibilities we need to consider. One there was an unimagined magnitude of Englishmen who were skilled and versed in the required specialisms to run seaborne military operations. And this is a hidden seam of English knowledge during the pre-Norman era that no one's ever considered properly. Hmm. Two, men who showed they could run a ship to military standards were then fast-tracked to land and reward somewhere else, and that's a possibility lacking in evidence, And then there's three, that these rural-based steersmen were in charge of the the, the ship, but the ship handling part, they hired someone else to do. Ports, especially London, would have held a multitude of these specialist-skilled men, and it could be that the men of the ships feared were summoned and either got on board those ships and then hired some local sailors to supplement their forces, which was perfectly legal, by the way. Now, we're not 100% sure which one it was, but as you can see, I tend to favour the third option. Ultimately, we just have to get on board that the organising situation around the fleets of England was surprisingly vast, robust and vibrant. And given this, I think we're able to get a a better idea of how England's Grand Fleet organised itself and the role London played in this. Simply put, the system we think was in place was that the English shires paid to have ships built and laid up in London by means of a national tax called the Shipscot. Somewhere like Landlock, Warwickshire would have to pay for the construction of a ship or three. This is what the Shipscot covered. Then, when called upon by their king to serve in the fjord, the men of Warwickshire would see what the specifics of the call was. If some Vikings were sailing up the River Trent, say, then the fjord would amass and defend their homelands, as they'd done since the days of their great-grandfather. But if the summons was to serve at sea, defending the coast of England, the duties of the shipfjord, the designated commander of the local fjord unit, the steersman, would travel and bring his men to, to London, where he'd use cash to supplement the men of Warwickshire with skilled locals who understood more complex ship handling for the required term of service. And keep in mind, these crews and specialists may not have all been entirely English. Ports like London were very cosmopolitan. And an English fleet containing foreigners? That wasn't a new idea. We know, as I've said previously, that the fleet of Alfred the Great had Frisians in it, and King Edward definitely had Scandinavians in his fleet, and as I spent almost an entire chapter on, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the English fleet, used by King Ethelred to attack Scotland, the Isle of Man and Normandy, had a sizeable Norwegian contingent within it. What we do know for sure is how this fleet of the English Shires was in the service of King Edward, and by the year 1042, the tradition was that ships were mostly used as a preventative measure, you could raise the fjord to defend your local region if attacked by invader, but if they served in the ship's they would prevent the raider from landing in the first place. With this said, it is worth keeping in mind that the men of the Shars were expected to only give two months' service for the ship fjord, and if they were needed for longer than two months, the ships would return to base to swap out crews. Which base? The English Naval Headquarters was always London. This is where we assume most, if not all, of the English ships were laid up for winter. And where ships laid up for winter is actually a really important detail. Because we know over in Scandinavia, especially in Norway with its brutal winters, warships were kept in permanent ship houses, you know, to protect them from the elements. And at least one historian has suggested that it is not beyond the realms of possibility to suggest that somewhere, possibly upstream of London Bridge, were English ship houses of a similar type and role. I mean, it would make a lot of sense to protect an expensive, specialist warship from the inevitable damage it would get from just being hauled up on a beach or a riverbank. Every one of those ships had a mast and a sail, and English ships had no issue sailing anywhere they needed into uh, northern waters. The 11th century English ships could hold course on a wind, just as the Viking ships um, could do from about two centuries earlier. But these were, for their age, precision vehicles, requiring specialist skills and protection. You would not just leave them on a beach over the harshness of an English winter. Especially, as we discussed at length last episode, the English winters at the time were being full-blown horrendous. We also know that the English were mostly constructing their own ships, which meant there needed to be specialist shipbuilding facilities, which would have probably being based near where the winter houses of these ships were also. Now, I could get into a long and technically convoluted discussion about the size and construction of the English ships of this era, but we know that records indicate that English ships could and did beach when they needed, but also that they would sit at anchor for a while as well, and we have records from the time of Ethelred. But sometimes they needed small ships to pull the larger ships, suggesting they could not beach comfortably or easily. All in all, I think it's fair to assume that when these ships were not sailing in the English coastal waters, they were not just laid out on the beach. Which begs the question, where was it in London where the ships were moored and built? By the time of the 11th century, we know that London had quaysides which ships could moor up alongside, Bishopsgate and Ethelred's Heights, but these were almost exclusively used for cargo carrying craft. As such, I think it's reasonable to assume that London was the home of a range of specifically built ship houses for the construction and storage of the fleets of England. These buildings would have been the physical manifestation of the power and influence of the fleet upon the city. Please note, however, I could find no archaeological evidence to suggest these buildings existed, so I must insist that the listener take on board. This is what I believe and hold very close to my heart. Ultimately, for me, it just makes sense. Now, if these buildings did exist, where would they have been located? Well, we know there was a massively increased number of Scandinavian sailors, mostly based around Southwark. And we also know that over on Thorny Island, today's Westminster, there'd been a Royal Hall constructed by Canute. And finally, we know that opposite there was Lambeth, the place where we covered the wedding of Tovi Pruda and Githa Osgudottir a few chapters ago. And so it is to Lambeth I think we need to look. Lambeth in the 11th century was, we think, originally a very large parish indeed, extending from the Thames all the way south to Norwood, and may originally have been a single estate. Now, some have suggested it could have originally been in royal ownership, but it's worth considering which royal that would have been. And I believe, again, without evidence, that the royal who owned Lambeth was Canute, and that he gave it to someone as a gift, someone very important to him, Godwin, Earl of Wessex. And what makes me say that? Because in 1062, so a few 20 years from now, this massive estate was broken up for the first time, and the landowner doing the breaking up was Godwin's heir, Earl Harold Godwinson. Lambeth in the 1040s then was a massive estate and probably would have included what would become the medieval manors of Stockwell, and Vauxhall, although these names are not on record until 1197 and 1279 respectively. The area lying within the boundaries of this Lambeth would have comprised of about 1,000 acres. One historian writing about that division of this territory by Harold said, quote, "'It seems best to assume that the Lambeth Estate was a five-hide one centered on Stockwell, no doubt a landing place, what later became a separate entity called Vauxhall." And it's also worth noting that its very name suggests it had a nautical tradition going back some time. It was originally called Lambethia, which comes from the Old English and translates as a landing place for lambs. The name comes from it being a harbor which was used to receive or send out shipments of mutton. So a large area, Close to South London, where we know there's a growing population of Danish sailors. Opposite the King's Hall on Thorny Island. Mm. For me, that suggests that the centre of the English fleet, during the reign of Edward the Confessor, was Lambeth. This is where I think some of it, or most of it, was based during the winters. That if we travel back, we would see the winter houses and shipbuilding facilities. And it was here that the money spent in the ship Scot were sent, and the men marshalled for the ships feared would assemble. When the fleet was mobilized, it sailed from London, its strategic headquarters, to its forward operational base, usually the Port of Sandwich. King Aethelred had decreed back in 1008 that the fleet was required to assemble by Easter every year, and during the reign of Edward it appears to have been a ritual he oversaw personally. His involvement would have probably begun in London, I mean from Westminster He would have been ideally placed at overseeing the preparations of the warships if they were based in Lambeth, and then he could have joined them as they sailed out, a no-doubt majestic pageant of ships and flags and music and ritual, propaganda of the highest order. But this fleet was not just for show. During Edward's early reign, it was in use a lot, and how Edward used it showed how the fleet was him projecting his power, The fleet allowed England the will to prevent attackers from landing on English shores, but more than that, it allowed Edward, as much as Canute, seek to use military might to influence events beyond his borders. And to give you an idea of the scale of it, in 1048 there is a report of raiders, probably Vikings from the north diaspora of the Irish Sea, as always, when they were sailing in western waters. An English fleet was dispatched to deal with them, Earl Godwin of Wessex, commanded a force of 44 ships. Now his son Harold was in charge of one of the fleet, designated a kingship, and his other son Tostig commanded another kingship. But the remainder of that fleet was made up of 42 provincial ships. When part of this fleet was sent home because their two months was up, they returned to Mercia, suggesting the fleet was organized on a Shire basis. Two things come to mind from looking at this. One, keep in mind, as Earl Godwin is protecting the west coast of England with 44 ships, at the same time, King Edward is off the coast of Sandwich with another fleet protecting the east coast. We're not given the precise numbers, but you can see how large this is. And secondly, this demonstrates a clear difference between the provincial fleet, the ships feared, and the King's fleet and by 1048 the two were clearly working alongside each other but they were separate entities. And now we add the fact that between these two forces there could have been a third fleet. You must remember that when King Canute took over there had been a body of 40 ships in London mostly crewed by Danes to keep an eye on the place and it was paid for by the English taxpayer In fact, the way England could afford such a huge expensive fleet during this era and the taxes levied to pay for it are actually some of the best proof of the wealth and excellent governments of the English state in the 11th century. But I digress. This fleet was a foreign and mercenary force under the employment of the Danish King of England. They were not, as the years passed, completely isolated from the kingdom or from the city of London they were based in. Indeed, we know they began to integrate and assimilate into London society at this time. And if you want proof of their wider assimilation, consider that it was this body, known as the Leisman, who chose Harold Harefoot to become King of England when Canute died, which suggests Canute's son had spent some time with them, perhaps, or was known to them, and clearly that this force was not completely isolated from the country around it. But then it's worth remembering that when Harold's half-brother, Arthur Canute took the throne, this mercenary fleet increased to over 94 ships which cost a veritable fortune to keep running. Edward actually began paying them off in stages, disposing of the last one by 1051. It took him about nine years, so let's assume he was dismissing about 10 ships a year. Now, some historians have suggested this weakened England and left it vulnerable to the Norman invasion. But to be blunt, in the years after 1050, Edward had much more to fear from a large body of Scandinavian mercenaries hanging around London than from any invader. And as we will examine in future chapters, Edward getting rid of that mercenary fleet wasn't just being done to relieve the burden from the English taxpayer, but we'll come back to that. It could be worth considering that the fleet of the ships feared and this mercenary fleet were probably wintering and based in the same region. That both had been based in Lambeth and that the whole south bank of the river, the massive Lambeth estate and Southwark, the Burr and Royal Mint on the other side of the Thames across from London Bridge, was the bedrock originally of the Scandinavian mercenaries who came over with Canute and stayed. And the entire pro-Danish faction of the English court, the Anglo-Scandinavians led by collaborators like Godwin of Wessex, were also heavily influential in the region and it's probably why he ended up owning the land it was based on. And then on top of this I just need to throw in that when Edward took the throne of England there could have actually been four separate fleets. So we've got the royal fleets paid for and run by the king, the provincial fleet from across the country, a large Scandinavian mercenary fleet and all of them I believe were based in Lambeth, and then there's a smaller, separate, dedicated ship service given by the Ports of Kent, a body later formed into an organization known as the Think Ports. These ships were mostly too small to be warships, but these small boats were probably the scouts of the English Navy and State. This was the sheer size, scale, and power of the English fleet. And it is reflected in the fact that we do see these English fleets being used heavily during this era, more so than any other Anglo-Saxon king, with the possible exception of King Edgar. So when not using the fleet to defend the English seacoast from Viking pirates, it was also being used as a crucial part of English foreign policy. In 1045, for example, King Edward gathered the largest English fleet ever seen, probably by combining elements of all the ones we've just mentioned, and he used them to see off the very real threat of invasion by King Magnus of Norway. In 1047 and 1048, King Sven Ethresen, the the new ruler of Denmark, asked for help, and the king, after Godin insisted upon it, sent 50 ships both years to help the Danes. King Sven did ask for help again in 1049, and thought he was going to get it, Don't forget Godwin was related by marriage to Severn, but they were unable to get support to send out 50 ships in 1049. Please note that year, however, Edward was able to assemble a large fleet of Sandwich in support of the Holy Roman Emperor, Henry III, who was conducting a campaign against Count Baldwin of Flanders. Bottom line, all we need to take from this chapter is that the massive fleet, or fleets, of England were clearly needed. And these fleets were active every year during the early part of Edward's reign. And as such, London's crucial role as the headquarters, organizational base, and winter quarters for it, saw the city becoming increasingly pivotal towards England as a whole. London was then something more than just a trade emporium, more than just an economic hub. Here we see in the 1040s, it becoming the centre of power. To quote the exact wording used in a legal document from the reign of King Edward the Confessor, London was, quote, cui capet est regnae et legum semper curiae domine regus, unquote. Forgive my bad Latin. Roughly it translates as the source of law and royal rule. For me, this says that while it could have been uncertain to begin with, London would probably have embraced the new king with gusto. And something else was restored. If King Edward the Confessor was sending out a message that his reign was the resurrection of what once was, if it was about the rebirth of the old ways, and I believe that here and now, with this alone, London embraced the resurrection of the covenant it had formed with the kings of the House of Wessex of old. London returned to being loyal to their king, renewed the bonds that made the Kingdom of London place this line as their line of kings, one they would defend with all their might. And oddly enough, they were going to need to do that real soon, because while all this was going on, there was a feud brewing. In between the mentions of natural disasters, of famines and pestilence and disease, and hidden behind the events of great fleets sailing down the Thames and returning home to winter beyond London Bridge, something was building. A rivalry was ongoing, and it was coming to fruition. And when it broke, London was going to have to find that they had to prove their loyalty to the king. But that part comes next. Thanks for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Once again, sorry if it sounds different this week. I am in a totally new, bespoke location. <laughs> uh, and, you know, maybe you can hear outside. Uh, I'm travelling. Normal service will resume next episode, I hope. Uh, there'll be a link to the rough script I used to make this episode upon, included in the description. And coming up are three special episodes which tell a score of amazing stories that take place in London over the next few years. And for reasons that will become very apparent as you start listening, I'll be calling them the Godfather Trilogy. But more of that comes up in the next episodes. Thanks for listening. Cheers.